Welcome back to Compound Thesis. Our guest today is AJ Warner, and he's the Chief Strategy Officer at Offchain Labs. Now, Offchain Labs is the developer behind Arbitrum, one of the largest L2 scaling solutions for Ethereum. The Compound just recently deployed on Arbitrum as part of our multi-chain strategy, which is really exciting. Uh, on the show today, we're going to dive into Ethereum's roll-up-centric roadmap, the applications Arbitrum is seeing drive the most growth, and future verticals and segments to bring the next generation of users into crypto. AJ, welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited for this and uh, really excited to compound during the Arbitrum ecosystem. Yeah, same, same here. Um, so, you know, before we dive in uh, to, you know, the whole roadmap for, for Arbitrum and the community, um, for those that are unfamiliar with Offchain Labs, uh, what is your mission and, and you know, what does Arbitrum uh, solve for in the crypto ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So um, thanks for having me on again. And I was, I work at Offchain Labs and our mission is really to help Ethereum scale. And we have two main products and we're going to focus obviously talking about Arbitrum mainly here, but to briefly talk about, you know, sometimes the, you know, an under, under, under heralded or underrated component of the stuff that we contribute is actually Prismatic Labs software, the Prism software for staking on Ethereum layer one. So the core contributors to Prism are all, you know, joined the off-chain labs family and we're really excited about all the work and contributions we make to Ethereum layer one. But, you know, off-chain labs is obviously most famously known for building Arbitrum technology uh, from the ground up. Um, it's actually quite a long history of how Arbitrum got to where it is today. So um, Ed Felton is one of the three co-founders and currently the chief scientist. When the first smart contract white papers were launched in uh, or published in, I think it was 2013 or 2014, Ed dedicated at Princeton, where he was a professor's fall 2014 mm -hmm. class to building Arbitrum, which is a layer two on top of a hypothetical layer one. Ethereum didn't even exist yet. It was just, if you're going to have smart contracts, you're going to have to have like a multi-tiered, multi-layered you know, blockchain infrastructure if you wanted to maintain decentralization, which I'm sure we're going to sort of talk about those themes you know, later on. Um, after that semester, you can still find the final presentation on YouTube. It's like hilarious to see sort of how far we've come. <laughs> but he went to the White House where Ed was Obama's deputy CTO. Um, when Obama, you know, finished his term, Ed returned to Princeton. And it was the first time that you saw congestion on the Ethereum network was when the CryptoKitties uh, NFT collection had launched. Uh, Stephen and Harry, the other two co-founders, um, were PhD students at the time. They approached Ed and said, you know, we should probably pick up this Arbitrum thing again. Um, it looks like it really will be important for scaling Ethereum. And that's sort of when they began, you know, building, commercializing the technology. Um, five years later, we're here today. Obviously it's been, a, it's been an exciting roadmap. Um, but the goal and mission of what we're trying to do at Offchain Labs is solve scale without compromise. Um, mm. and scale is three things and, you know, within an environment of decentralized technology, obviously right now we're talking about the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, what we try to do is we try to scale throughput by increasing the amount of transactions that can be done. We try and scale fees, right? Because for inclusivity, you can't have you know, $20 transactions or $5 transactions, even if we want to scale this technology to the world. Um, and we're trying to develop, scale developer experience. Um, Ethereum, obviously the programming language is Solidity, Viper, anything that compiles to like the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, um, is not known to the world, right? Like there's, you know, probably millions of Solidity developers in the world at this point, but there's hundreds of millions of developers in other programming languages. And we're trying to see how do we get more inclusive to onboard more developers? Cause you know, the reality is not everybody's going to learn Solidity. Um, so we're trying to see how do we get more people? We've got something called Arbitrum Stylus, which we're going to probably talk about later too. So that's really our mission is to solve scale without compromise, um, along those three sort of 
you know, axes. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So we'll, we'll definitely dive into each one of those three verticals. Um, but before that, you know, it sounds like it had the foresight that there would be an L1 that lacked, uh, you know, scalability and capacity and throughput, um, and designing this L2. So can you do, you know, now that we're, you know, fast forward to 2023 and Ethereum has, you know, been very explicit about its roll-up centric strategy. Um, you know, so where does Arbitrum fit into that roadmap and, and how does it kind of help, uh, guide your development of the Arbitrum ecosystem? Yeah. So, you know, the, the reason why Ethereum has chosen this roll-up centric roadmap is because there's something called the blockchain trilemma, which basically means, and the trilemma generally means there's three different things. You can only have two out of three things. Um, in a blockchain, you know, context, those three things are decentralization, security, and throughput. And principally and fundamentally, the reason for that is because if you have more throughput, it's going to become more expensive to run nodes. And if it becomes too expensive to run nodes, then nobody's going to do it on their home computers. Nobody will do it on an individual basis because they won't have incentive to do so. And you'll just have databases around the world that are run by, you know, in, in server houses that are, you know, zooming in. We're basically not decentralized. We're back to the centralization concerns that you have in, 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 in traditional uh, technology. So Ethereum's made the choice, the decision that we want the base layer of Ethereum to remain extremely decentralized where anybody at home can run a node. And that means we have to limit the amount of capacity in the network because we want to limit the growth of the blockchain essentially and to ensure that, you know, hardware, you know, you know, retail hardware can keep up with the growth of the state. Um, so that means Ethereum has basically, you know, like a 12 to 15 transaction per second limit. And if anything demand in excess of that, you are going to see auctions, which makes Ethereum expensive. So how do, how does Arbitrum and you know, rollups typically solve this? The way they do it is by taking the execution of the transactions off of Ethereum and then posting the data to Ethereum. So if you've used Arbitrum before, or any of your users have used Arbitrum, it looks like another blockchain, right? It looks like it's no different than using, you know, Avalanche, another, you know, EVM L1 or Polygon POS, which is like a typical sidechain. But what makes Arbitrum and Rollups different is it's actually a set of smart contracts that lives on top of Ethereum. And when you do a transaction in Arbitrum, the protocol takes your transaction and other, other transactions and it batches them together, compresses their data and posts is a single transaction, like a thousand transactions together to Ethereum layer one. And all of the execution happens on Arbitrum and only your call data that is necessary to recreate your transaction on Ethereum is what's posted to Ethereum. So if Arbitrum fell over tomorrow, it didn't exist. You can recreate the entire history of the state of Arbitrum from data that's been posted to Ethereum. And this idea of taking execution off chain and posting the data and compressing it is what brings the costs from like five dollars a transaction to 20 cents because we've been able to really compress that you know extremely efficiently and you know we're going to continue to improve on that um so what's the secret sauce of a roll-up right the secret sauce of a roll-up though and this is where zk roll-ups and optimistic roll-ups differ is how do you prove to ethereum that what happened on arbitrum or a different roll-up is true correct and complete Right, that's the secret sauce. I can post anything I want to Ethereum, but how do I know that what was posted to Ethereum, or how does more importantly, how does Ethereum know what was posted to Ethereum is true, correct, and complete? And optimistic rollups, the Arbitrum uses a proving mechanism um, where anybody can challenge what was done, and then you know you figure out who's who's correct based on you know history of the state. 
Um, and ZK Rolex will use like a ZK prover, which is like very fancy cryptography. Um, but that's why the prover is such a critical component because the value of doing everything off chain is only insofar as you can prove on chain that what happened is true, correct, and complete. And that's what we're really excited about with Arbitrum. You know, Arbitrum's had its, you know, been fully functioning and built out since about August 2021. We launched currently, you know, got about 65% of the market share of all Ethereum layer two rollups. And we're really excited about the growth of the ecosystem. It's both, you know, major DeFi protocols like um, Compound that have joined the ecosystem from Ethereum layer one, um, as well as Arbitrum native projects that never could have existed on Ethereum because the gas fees would have been too high. It's been amazing to see, for example, like GMX, um, a lot of their growth is a function of the fact that gas fees were, you know, much, you know, much lower than they could have been um, ever on Ethereum layer one, where they probably, um, you know, would never have been able to take off. So in those examples, um, you know, what is the delta, I guess, if they were deploying, you know, Compound is obviously on both chains, Ethereum and Arbitrum, as, as well as a few others. Like, what's the delta in terms of gas fees? Like, do you have any way to quantify that? And, you know, yeah, so, so, so it depends on a few things. It's not like in a perfect science. It depends, for example, on like, what is Ethereum layer one's gas price right now? Right. So if it's $5, like there's, well, there's functions that I don't think is there congestion on arbitrage that rarely happens, but it's possible that it could happen. But typically what we see, and it also depends on the type of transaction, right? What we typically see on like, um, you know, opening, closing, like a you know money market pool or like a DEX trade, for example, like Uniswap type trade, uh, it's about 25 to 40 times cheaper. Mm. Something like GMX, which is much more complicated from an execution perspective, you know, they don't exist on layer one, but my guess would be is that it's about 100 to 150 times cheaper to do. And so because of that, then that must you know, translate to the average transaction size being dramatically smaller, or at least possibly dram dramatically smaller on Arbitrum than it is Ethereum. So like when you talk about unlocking access to be, you know, much more inclusive, um, you know, transaction sizes of, you know, a million dollars, a buy order or, you know, borrowing, you know, $10 million worth of Ethereum. It's probably something that happens every day on the L1, but on L2s, I would imagine that, you know, because the transaction fees are much smaller, that you could actually economically still, you know, do the same activity, but at a much smaller uh, dollar amount. Is that, is that true? Yeah. So I, yeah, that, that, that's definitely true. Right. So I think one thing that we're seeing is we're continuing to unlock access, right? Um, an Arbitrum trade, you know, might be about 20 cents, you know, in order to amortize the cost of a 20 cent transaction fee, you know, if, you know, if you're doing a hundred dollar trade, it's, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're much more concerned about like, you know, liquidity, you know, you know, um, spreads and stuff than you are with that transaction fee at that point. Yeah. What we're seeing though on Arbitrum is a couple of interesting things. One is that there has been a lot of movement of liquidity into Arbitrum. So for some context, there's almost, there's almost 1.1 million ETH that lives in the Arbitrum bridge. Um, that means that ETH has been bridged from Ethereum to Arbitrum outside of like centralized exchanges and like the Lido contracts, it, you know, vastly exceeds any other existing contract or any pool, even on Ethereum layer one. So there has been a huge movement of liquidity where you could make trades of meaningful size on Arbitrum if you wanted to. Um, and you know, on a similar note, there's about $1.2 billion of USDC that's been bridged from Ethereum to arbitrage, right? So like, there's been meaningful and sufficient liquidity for basically any kind of trade that you'd want to do um, in existence at arbitrage. It's probably not as distributed as like on Ethereum where, you know, you have a bunch of different like major 
protocols with you know significant liquidity, um, but the liquidity is within the ecosystem. So what we're seeing is that there is definitely a lot of inclusion where people can do smaller trades. And we see when we track, you know, like visits to our bridge page, for example, like people are coming from, you know, developing countries much more than you'd expect, um, especially in gaming, I would say. Um, but what, what, what you're also seeing is that it's actually both, you know, you have people who are moving like significantly quitting. I think it's derivatives in particular, right? So like, you know, if you want to do, if you want to open a position on compound, you're probably much more likely to do so on Ethereum layer one, just obviously there's, you know, compounds only been there a month, but there's not that much liquidity. But if you're talking about like, a, you know, derivatives trade, you know, that's where a lot of people are moving significantly liquidity in Arbitrum. You know, GMX is doing about a half a billion dollars a day sometimes in volume. And, you know, it's really meaningful amounts of, of amounts of transactions. So I think that the reason why you're still seeing people open positions on L1 is because it's a chicken and egg game, right? Ethereum, the apps, obviously the Arbitrum ecosystem, everyone wants to move to L2s, but how do you get people to do that, right? There's fragmentation because like, well, there's a lot of L2s, right? So I think that we're at a point in the market where there's some like hesitation, not so much because they don't see the future being on L2, but because, well, now I have to make a decision which L2. Now I have, mm. I have to fragment liquidity. And I think a lot of teams and liquidity providers are sort of still getting their heads wrapped around that. And, you know, some of it's also infrastructure, frankly. So, for example, you know, Circle announced last week that, you know, native USDC is going to be available on Arbitrum. That's a huge thing for, I'm sure, for Compound, for example, right? When people are, you know, deploying into Compound, they, they just want to, you know, have native onboarding from US dollars into USDC and, and, and make it simple. They don't want to have to deal with any bridge risk or bridging mechanisms, et cetera. And, you know, this stuff takes time to build out in an infrastructure. And, you know, most, if not all of the infrastructure necessary is on live on Arbitrum already, but in the, on the public Arbitrum chains, at least. Um, but that's just, you know, that's part of the chicken and the egg narrative. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it creates, um, you know, a tailwind to the ecosystem, the more native assets are issued, you know, versus bridged, given all the, the risk associated with that. And so, um, that, that circle news is, is definitely something that our community is looking at, um, uh, pretty closely. And so I would imagine that a lot of the assets that have been ported over a tremendous amount of that will convert to native uh, USDC, but then also that'll unlock a lot more utility for folks that are uh, concerned with bringing from one chain to another um, into the ecosystem. So it just will bring in a lot more activity and demand just okay. natively on the, on, the, on the platform. So um, can we just kind of go back to the technology side really quickly? So one thing I think we skipped over a little bit there that might be helpful to just better understand is, you know, as Arbitrum is posting, um, you know, transactions or, or the call data to, to L1, you know, how does that process actually take place? Like, can you describe what a sequencer is and what it does and how that, that is becoming more and more decentralized over time? Yeah. So, um, right now, um, so on the Arbitrum public chains, uh, the, the protocol as a whole and all the parameters have been given over to the community, right? So you know, the ability to upgrade contracts, the ability to, in the Nova example, add data availability com committee members, the ability to choose who the sequencer is, all in the control of the hands of the DAO. The sequencer itself is run more centrally the, you know, through the Arbitrum Foundation for now, and there's definitely plans to decentralize the sequencer. But the way the sequencer works, it's got a very limited role within the ecosystem. The sequencer mm -hmm. essentially can only do one thing, it can order your transaction. So it has all the transactions come in. And then it says, this is the order that I received the transactions. This is the order that the transactions are posted. Um, it theoretically has the ability to order, reorder transactions to extract MEV. 
Uh, right now it's not doing so, but there's a lot of, you know, interest, um, there's a lot of interest in moving, um, to an environment where, you know, this stuff's getting researched, you know, but right now it doesn't do any of that extraction. Um, and that's, you know, sort of an off-chain labs, you know, where I work, that's always been our philosophy to have, you know, minimal immediate extractions from the system. But the sequencer's role is just to see, so it can't censor you. If the sequence, if the sequencer decides not to accept your transaction, you can go around the sequencer and post your transaction yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So it has very limited, uh, functionality, but what the sequencer does, it takes all of these transactions and it posts them to Ethereum, basically it compresses them into like batches. It posts, they add into like a single batch and that batch gets posted, you know, to Ethereum as like representing a thousand transactions. And that transaction that gets posted is just all the call data, right? So if you do a transaction, I do a transaction, you know, anybody else does a transaction within a certain time frame, about like one to two minutes, you know, it gets added as a batch of like a thousand transactions and posted to Ethereum. And you, that batch, you can just recreate the entire state essentially. And if there are any validators that are watching the posting of these batches, right? And there's any assertions from validators, that these batches are correct. Any other validator has the ability to challenge that the batch that was posted is true, correct, and complete. Um, and they can, you know, win the staked amount if they're right, or they'll lose the staked amount if they're, if they're wrong, essentially. So that's kind of how the system works. And the, the key here, I think it's pretty simple in its design, but the key and the secret sauce is how do you have a system where you can have confidence to prove right. all that actually was posted was true, correct, and complete in an efficient way. Um, and because you have to be able to prove it over Ethereum, right? So Ethereum needs to know. It was actually really cool. So it played out in real life. It hasn't played out in real life on the public Arbitrum chains, but it played out in real life actually after the merge on the ETH POW chain. Okay. So what happened was, so, you know, as you know, the merge happened and there was like a chain split and ETH POW and like what we call Ethereum now, you know, existed. So ETH POW, the bridge, there was like 800,000 ETH time. And ETH POW is trading at like $6 a token or something. Somebody tried submitting an invalid state route to steal the 800,000 ETH POW in that bridge, which would have been worth almost $5 million for the time. Hmm. Um, someone on our team was running an ETH POW validator just because they were curious to see if somebody would try this and actually successfully defended the chain saying that the validator was posting invalid state route. Right? So it was cool to see quasi-production essentially yeah. that one person had the ability to defend the entire network from a malicious actor right and that's like the any that's the properties of a roll-up that anyone who's running a validator can have the ability to defend it on ethereum because the system um the system's intended to defend itself it, it's i mean it sounds extremely simple but i can imagine that you know in the princeton uh phd classes that there's quite a amount uh, a, a lot that goes into um that statement of defending the chain um, yes for definitely <laughs> yes it's quite complicated you know we use some called interactive fraud proofs that we've been you know pioneering for years but yes, right. yeah it sounds so simple exactly. yeah right i was gonna yeah uh, uh you know here i am thinking about zip files and and defending a chain is you know uh is the way that i think about it from a, a very non-technical standpoint uh, but i imagine that it's it's quite more complicated so um to get even more technical just a uh, last question on that uh, you know, EIP 4844, uh, is something that I imagine is going to impact Arbitrum. Can you explain like a little bit about what it is and how that that's going to, um, you know, impact just the, the yeah, experience? definitely. I won't get too technical because 
I don't even understand all the technical components of it. My <laughs> colleagues, uh, parents on the prison team is actually very involved in sort of the building out of a lot of the specs and prototypes and stuff. But the, the way to think about it is, is, you know, rollups are going to have a special highway posting data to Ethereum. So right now, you know, the Arbitrum sequencer, the Optimism sequencer, StarkNet sequencer, ZK Sync sequencer, all these different sequencers are competing for block space, for example, with a transaction that a compound user wants to do. And this makes um, the cost of posting call data to Ethereum more expensive mm. for the sequencers. Um, what's going to happen essentially is that the rollups are going to have a dedicated lane to post, you know, blobs of data, essentially instead of like specific data. And these like highways are going to make posting data significantly cheaper for rollups than, um, than they are in the current environment. And that will presumably lead to lower fees on the L2, right? Cause you know, we talk about 20 cent fees and you know, in the context of Arbitrum Nova, which you know, I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute or two, we could go a little bit further into this, but 20 cents doesn't work for the entire world, right? There's places in the world where that's still like an absolute, you know, amount of money, prohibitive amount of money. Um, so we have to continue to work to lower and lower these costs and, you know, 4844 is going to play, you know, a critical role in, in that. Perfect. Yeah. So I, let's pivot over to, um, to Nova and to Arbitrum one. So, you know, there's two different chains, um, you know, optimized for different use cases, I guess. So, uh, Arbitrum one for those that aren't familiar focuses really on DeFi and NFTs while, uh, Nova specialized more on the social and gaming side. So, um, you know, can you give us a little bit of a, a breakdown? Uh, we heard a little bit about compound, you know, deploying on Arbitrum one, but you know, what are some of the use cases you're seeing there? And then, you know, contrast that with what you're seeing in terms of adoption on the Nova chain. Yeah, for sure. So, um, to, so just one, one point of clarification. So again, I work at Offchain Labs at the National Builders, but these two chains, Arbitrum one and Arbitrum Nova, those are what are currently in the hands of the DAO. Um, so I'll talk about the underlying technology. Um, and then we can talk about those ecosystems as well. So Arbitrum one, um, Arbitrum one is built on optimistic rollup technology. And that's like the core rollup technology, um, that we've built. That's like our first initial product that we launched the first technical product, um, of rollup. And that inherits the full security of Ethereum, right? All call data is posted to Ethereum. You know, obviously there's like smart contract risk and Arbitrum, you know, there's decentralization, like progressive decentralization of components, but fundamentally the rollups post the data to Ethereum. With Arbitrum Nova, which is built on what we call the any trust technology, um, there's one additional trust assumption. And the reason we built the any trust technology was because precisely what we just talked about for certain places in the world in certain use cases, 20 cents is still too expensive. Um, you know, we can, we talked about, you know, some third world developing countries or even more, you know, relevant, I would say right now is, um, the gaming vertical, right? So. In some of these games where they don't have significant amount, you know, financial activity, right? You know, we're talking about like million dollar compound positions or opening GMX positions, right? You don't care about 20 cents there. But if I want to like, you know, update the status of my game or, you know, claim a skin, the skin might be worth less than 20 cents. Right. Right. So for this to work, it needs to be significantly cheaper. And, but even more importantly than that, if we're talking about a non crypto native and, you know, user base is particularly in gaming. They don't, a lot of the games want to abstract the cost of gaming, of, of transacting on the blockchain away from their users. It's much easier to model and swallow a one to two cent transaction than it is to swallow a 20 cent that has a lot of volatility depending on the price of L1. So what is the antitrust additional assumption? 
the assumption is, is that we post the validation, validator assertions to Ethereum, but the data is actually not held on Ethereum. The data is held on a committee, on a data availability committee. And this committee is entrusted to hold the data on behalf of the chain. And you know, any node can you know, source the data from that committee if they wanted to, but Ethereum is not the host of that data. It's a committee. So, and the, and when the really cool thing about the Nova chain is if this committee goes malicious, any one member can turn on a switch essentially that forces the protocol into a rollup, hmm. right? So it has a backstop that, okay, we want it to be cheap, but we don't want to halt progress the same way like a side chain might halt, right? So for example, in a typical side chain, if there's collusion amongst the validators, the chain can stop. We right. actually saw that kind of play out when Luna crashed, the validators just turned off the network essentially. Right. So here, the way it works in the Nova environment is you have this committee, but any one member of the committee can force the protocol into a rollup, in which case it relies on Ethereum security. So it doesn't have like a safety mechanism. But the principle is as long as one member of this committee is honest and holds your data or chooses to turn it into a rollup, you can have the committee hold the data. And this is, removes the requirement to post call data to Ethereum, which is the overwhelming majority of the cost the fees, of, yeah. of the fees of using arbitrage, right? It's like 80 and 90%. Wow. Um, so, so with, with the, so who is this committee? So on the arbitrage Nova, the public network right now, again, this is in the hands of the DAO. They can add or members however they want. But right now it's um, Off-Chain Labs, uh, Reddit, um, Consensus, QuickNode, uh, P2P validators, the team that was one of the initial builders of the Lido protocol, um, OpenSea. Um, I'm probably missing someone off the top of my head, so I apologize for that. Oh, Google, Google Cloud. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason why we sort of initially had selected this group um, as committee members was we tried to create a group where you can kind of have some the trusted assumptions are one. There's kind of somebody in this group that regardless of who you are, you should be trusting someone, right? So if you're like a web two person, like, oh, I, you know, I use Google cloud. I would trust Google cloud, right? Or right. I've worked with consensus on web three stuff, or, you know, I'm using our click for RPCs or open seas where I'm using my NFTs or Reddit is, you know, a community I tap into or off chain labs, right? The team that built this, I, I trust them not to do this in the of the network, right? So. The point was that everybody should feel comfortable that there is one member of this committee, at least that they would trust that are reputable, um, that they have this additional security trust assumption. And, you know, adding that, adding the committee is, you know, fees are, you know, if a fee is 20 cents on Arbitrum 1, it's about sub-penny on Arbitrum Nova. Wow. And, um, Reddit was the pioneer user of the chain. So when Reddit selected uh, Arbitrum technology for their community points program, they chose to use Nova because the scale of the program, you know, required this, you know, when they, on day one, when they launched their community points program with two subreddits, the cryptocurrency and Fortnite subreddits, I think they, they airdropped, um, to the tokens to 265,000 wallets. Wow. If they did that on Ethereum, it would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. crazy money. Yeah. Yeah. On Arbitrum, it would have cost tens of thousands of dollars. If they did it on Arbitrum Nova, it cost less than $1,500. Well, so it's like a really, it's a practical you know, business decision that they made um, with an environment that had the best trade-offs uh, for what they need. So we push a lot of social and gaming projects to Nova. We don't push every project. We, you, know, the, you know, our vision, um, when I say Nova, I mean like the technology stack, right? So our vision is if you're a financial services product, you should be in the environment that has um, the best security trade-offs, right? The money matters the trade-offs for gaming are different. You know, obviously there are some assets that are very valuable within games and 
but work at interoperability so that you can list them in a more liquid environment. For example, in L1, you know, some teams have done that or either an Arbitrum 1, which has more liquidity. Um, but that's really how we think about it. There's not one blockchain infrastructure technology stack that works for every use case. Um, and you should be thoughtful about what your use case is and what the trade off is, you know, from the way we make a decision about networks. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I've got a ton of questions, but uh, on the, you know, the, the committee that is existing today, so that's now governed by the Arbitrum DAO. How does, what's the process for adding and or removing members? Is that just, you know, a standard committee vote or a community vote or is there? Yeah, so right now it would be a community vote. It would be, I think, a non-constitutional vote. It might be constitutional, I can't remember. That just depends on the quorum that's necessary to add people. But um, yeah, you know, it's a proposal to the DAO to be added to the committee. Um, and yeah, the, the, and the DAO has the right to, to modify that make those changes yeah and is there like a term of the seats that they're holding or is it in perpetuity no, until... right now it's set up in perpetuity it was just like an, we you know we had at Opchain labs we we built it over an hour before the DAO had control so we just set it up um as this is the committee the DAO can there are reasons you don't want to always just be changing the committee arbitrarily right you want people to have the infrastructure to be building this yeah um, so um, I mean, the DAO has the right to, it's not an election process. The DAO can remove or add, you know, depending on how they see fit. How they see fit. Yeah. And then my last question on, on this particular, is, is there, uh, potentially Nova one, Nova two, Nova three, where you have different verticals of different committees, like maybe there's a financial services specific one that has, you know, big yeah, banks. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's sort of the evolution of where we see this going. So we're, you know, at Offchain Labs, you know, part of what we're doing actually is working with projects that want to build layer three technologies. They don't right. want to be on the public chains and we're helping them, you know, form data availability committees, you know, we'll probably join some of these committees for them. Um, and they're going to have their own committees. The DAO will probably have their own more additional over time public chains that sure. they'll be involved with that will be, you know, subsets, right? So one use case that you kind of reference is consortiums, right? That they want, one of the advantages of these committees are you can add some layers of privacy to the data and how the data is made available. And there's definitely been some financial services folks who have been looking at that to see like, how do we have a committee of, of a consortium that we trust to see the data? We want the validation to happen on Ethereum, but you know, are there ways that we can shield the data from people who are not in that committee, for example? Yeah, I mean, disclosing who your counterparty is on every single transaction is not necessarily ideal in financial services. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. um, okay, last question for you, which might open a little bit of a can of worms, is on the technology side. You mentioned Stylus at the beginning, so you know one of the main uh, focus areas for Arbitrum is inclusivity, and you know there's a ton of different programming languages out there. Um, you reference Solidity, but there are a number of others. Uh, can you talk about what Stylus is trying to achieve in terms of unlocking more adoption in Web3? Yeah. So like I said, you know, we've scaled, you know, with the Arbitrum tech stack. So Arbitrum Rollup and Arbitrum NHS technologies can do seven to 10 times the capacity of an Ethereum chain. And that's, again, a parameter. We could probably do more, but yeah. we recommend it because you want to have some decentralization of people running nodes. Um, these are coming down depending on if you're using one or Nova or any trust or Rollup, somewhere between 50 and 200x. But developers are still struggling with the functionality of programming languages, where you right now can only use Viper or Solidity any tech compiles to the VM. And there are a bunch of other, you know, you know, blockchain ecosystems, you know, Solana, which uses Rust, or Sui and Aptos, which use Move, um, that these languages that, you know, 
for certain use cases work well. Developers are, you know, particularly in the West case, are very familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And what the goal of Stylus is, is how do we bring additional programming language to the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So uh, Stylus is a program that we're building, which basically allows languages that compile to Wasm to be provable over Ethereum. Uh, the programming languages that we're going to start with are Rust, C, and C++. So you'll be able to build your contracts in Rust or write your contracts in Rush and deploy them to Arbitrum chains. Um, Stylus going live on the Arbitrum public chains will be approval, have to be approved by the DAO, but sure. in private Arbitrum chains that, you know, off campus and building or the technology just generally, uh, this will be a functionality that's, that's available. And it's extremely powerful. Um, we've seen, you know, optimizations, you know, with pre-compiles that are written in Rust that, you know, can have an order of magnitude cost efficiency because there are just certain things that are cheaper to write in Rust. From a resource perspective, they are right in solidity. Um, they're more efficient. And those are the kind of advantages that we want developers to be able to take advantage of. And also, um, just, you know, you don't, one of the things that we've been seeing is there's a trade-off between, you know, if you want to write in Rust, you have to leave the Ethereum ecosystem. So that brings a lot of people to writing in solidity. And that friction shouldn't be necessary, right? We should be able to have more flexibility within the Ethereum ecosystem. And that's that's what we're trying to do. So you can have a composable Rust contract with a composable Uniswap like trade, and there's really no other ecosystem or technology stack that that will be possible in. Um, and that's you know that's very exciting. We last week announced really cool news: um, the prover. So that thing that I spoke about earlier, which basically, how do I know that what happens on Arbitrum is true, correct, and complete from Ethereum's perspective? Um, prover that can prove stylus contract that can prove Rust on Ethereum. Um, is working. We got what Matt's been completed. So we announced that last week. Um, There's been a ton of progress. You know, we're still expecting Stylus to be available by the end of the year. Again, not on the public chain, but that timeline's up to the DAO, but in terms right. of technology perspective being ready, uh, we're expecting it to be ready by the end of the year, which is, you know, really exciting. And I think, um, again, the evolution of Ethereum scaling through rollups, you know, allows for lower fees, allows for higher throughput, but also allows for a lot more experimentation. Uh, we've seen Ethereum trying that eWASM, which is like additional programming languages, and it didn't work out. And that's fine because you want to make sure that Ethereum remains as security centralized as possible for the sake of the entire ecosystem. But you know, we're fortunate with Arbitrum technology that we're allowed to have a little bit more flexibility and experimentation. Yeah, just expanding the surface area of contributors to the entire ecosystem um, and reducing the friction of moving from one to another. So uh, it sounds really, really powerful and glad to hear that it's, uh, you know, making a ton of progress. Uh, Exciting news as of last week and your timeline sounds very exciting. Uh, I know that that feels like a decade in crypto time, but end of year will happen (laughs) before. (laughs) We tell that to like traditional tech people. They're like, oh, wow, that's so soon. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, why are you telling me? Come back to me in six months. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's amazing for somebody that straddles kind of both uh, TradFi and DeFi. Um, and, you know, the just the the speed and the throughput of one side versus the other is tremendously, uh, it's, it's a stark contrast. Um, yep. But uh-huh. it is exciting to see those two worlds converging uh, every single day. So, um, well, this has been great. I appreciate you walking us through the entire uh, ecosystem, you know, your experience at Offchain Labs and how you guys are optimizing for the future growth of Ethereum. And, you know, uh, it sounds like a lot of exciting developments to come out of uh, the off-chain team in the next uh, in the next few years, next few months. So, um, any takeaways or closing thoughts before I let you go? Uh, yeah. Um, well, first of all, we're excited to see what Compound and Arbitrum can do. It's 
just the beginning when it looks already really, to be really promising. Um, and, you know, let's, you know, I always, this is, this is kind of always my call to action to the community. When we think about the chicken and the egg of how do we have L2 and L1 interact, the scaling solutions, whether it's off-chain labs, Arbitrum DAO, or, you know, any other roll-up, you know, builder, they cannot do without application developers and users understanding what sort of looks like. Like if you're not experimenting on these L2s um, or Arbitrum or, you know, sort of thinking it was part of your dev roadmap, like we're not going to get to a place where Ethereum becomes a service provider to roll-ups and, you know, really raise the fees down for everybody. Um, so just, you know, I think it's a community effort and I, I guess my, my, my pitch is to the community, like everybody think about the best ways they can, they can chip in. Yeah, absolutely. No, you, uh, you know, picks and shovels are only valuable if there's gold and the gold is only valuable if there's a use case for it. So, um, it all, it's all necessary from one end of the spectrum to the other. So, um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate the perspective and compound is excited to be a part of the Arbitrum ecosystem and continue to grow there as well. I know it's early days, so. Um, thanks everybody for tuning in, you know, catch all of our episodes. We've got them on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. Um, if you enjoyed today's show, share it with a buddy, tell your parents about it, tell your friends, uh, and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again, AJ. Appreciate the time. Thank you again. Hi, this was great, Jim. See ya.